0: everybody and welcome back to New Books in Intellectual History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Alexandra Ottolia baird the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Lizzie O'Shea about her new book, Future Histories, What Ada Lovelace, Tom Paine and the Paris Commune Can Teach Us About Digital Technology. Lizzie O'Shea, welcome to the show. Thank you so much
1: for having me on.
0: So Lizzie, um, we thought we could kick off with our our classic question of of asking um, you to tell us a little bit more about yourself and and how you really came to be working in this area.
1: Yeah, wonderful. So I am a full-time practicing lawyer. I'm a litigator and I run cases in court Uh, and this kind of world has always introduced me to the idea of um, making arguments and putting forward your own position. Lawyers are very good at advocating. So we work with words as well. So it's something that I've always been intrigued by. And I felt for a long time as an advocate that I would like to experiment with long form writing. And that sits against a backdrop of, lots of activism. Um, I'm a digital rights activist. I sit on the board of a digital rights organisation that I helped to found here in Australia. Um, I've been active in lots of different social movements in Australia, particularly around the defence of um, refugee rights, for example, as well as um, working as a lawyer on a case that involved Aboriginal people trying to stop a nuclear waste dump being built on their land. So it's a quite diverse legal background coupled with activism um, that got me interested in writing uh, more generally and using words as a way to try and change the world for the better and uh, I had the fortunate, um, or the good fortune to be offered a scholarship to go and study at Columbia University in New York and I went and did that as part of their human rights program and um, I had the space there to really think about what uh, contribution to this field might look like and I always have been intrigued by digital technology. I think it's uh, something that showcases some of humanity's best aspects and also its worst and I wanted to really think about how I might be able to contribute to the discussion around technology from the perspective of someone who is not a technologist and to talk about how we might be advocating um, collectively as a society for a a more promising digital future Uh, and that space at at university really assisted me to do that and I worked with some wonderful academics there and and spurred me on to think uh, critically not just about social movements but the law uh, but then how that interplays with technology which the product of which really is this book
0: thank you I think that's a that's a very kind of clear um I guess uh, trajectory of, of how you got to future history so um you've spoken kind of widely about what you do but could you speak a little bit more um Specifically about the motivations in writing future histories and and who you really see the book as being aimed at. Um, I'm sure I'm sure that there's probably plural audiences um, who it's aimed at, but perhaps you could you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There is a couple of audiences in mind. So one of the things I think uh, that was quite obvious to me as a someone who's interested in digital technology um, is that uh, for a time I feel like lots of people involved in left politics or or left theoretical thinking at least or progressive movements were a bit hesitant to become involved in um, political questions concerning technology or policy as it comes to bear uh, in the technological space and part of that is I feel because a lot of the uh, kind of activism in this field uh, traditionally was associated with libertarianism um, and, you know, kind of the early days of the internet and, and the free software movement is commonly associated with that, a, a desire to be free from government interference and control uh, and autonomy to be able to pursue your projects as you see fit. Uh, and in part I felt like that created a gap. So when uh, questions were presented in um, in the public space around how we might contend with different forms of technology, what governments were trying to do with technology when they were trying to break encryption, for example, or um, how people might respond when um government uh, uh, tries to um, progress uh, powers for national security agencies and the like in very technological terms that might seem fine at first and very limited but had a very significant impact on, on things like digital security. Often these questions became very obscure for people who were traditionally advocating for progressive causes. So, It really identified a gap there for me that um, there are people who are involved in political causes, campaigning um, from the more progressive side of politics that don't often think about technology and don't think it's their purview and and feel nervous about engaging in these debates because they don't have the technological knowledge to do so. So I like to think that I can speak to that audience because I'm one of them. I'm not from a technological background, so I, I have to learn about these things and I'm trying to constantly digest them into an accessible format for those exact kinds of people. And then on the other side of that equation, what was I was also witnessing as I was writing this book, um, you know, quite obviously at the time of when I was living in the States was that many people who were saturated in technology, who grew up, fiddling with computers and um, experimenting with software and then went on to become engineers at places like Google and Facebook. We're actually um, starting to see the world in a new light and this is uh, sort of 2016 and onwards when uh, the effects of things like Brexit and um, the election of Donald Trump really highlighted the potentially very troubling role that some of these big tech companies have in in. Uh, disrupting our democracy for the worse, and uh, there's these this cohort of people were starting to become radicalized and interested in politics. Um, they weren't your usual suspects because they they you know tech, tech workers weren't traditionally organized um, into unions. Uh, they had no need for it in some ways. People would argue because they were paid well, but in fact that's not what was going on. That the tech workers were starting to question their role in the systems of power that they were helping to build, but also um, how they related as workers, um, compared to their colleagues who um, had varying degrees of rights within their organisations, how they might be able to start organising together to make changes both to their workplace, but also society. And it occurred to me that um, we can really speak to those people about how that kind of work's been done in the past and how it can be repurposed and we can learn from that for our present moment to become more effective. Uh, And so I really wanted to give some context to social movements that might be familiar to those who've been involved in, in activist politics for a while, less familiar if you're coming to it for the first time, and try and speak to them and talk about how technology really has a role to play in making the world better but it relies on us organizing and and working together as activists so there's those two audiences and what I wanted to do is kind of build a bridge between them so that we'd have common concepts and understandings of um, the the kinds of questions we would face uh, the kinds of problems we might encounter and how history can be a very useful guide for navigating them and that in fact a lot of the problems that might seem quite novel uh, of our present moment have in fact got a much longer history Uh, and in doing so I I would hope that we could find common cause and build a, a strong movement to build a more democratic future.
0: Thanks, Lizzie. That's fantastic. And I think you've, um, you've really outlined um, to listeners what exactly the, the the book really conveys so strongly. So um, I think that leads quite nicely into to my next question. Do you think, you could walk us through the general structure um, of the book to give listeners an an overview of sorts um, of kind of how your argument progresses and and what's really included. Sure. So
1: the key premise of the book is that I believe that we can make the present the cause of a different future, uh, but we've got our best chance of achieving that if we use history as a guide. Uh, So in essence, it's looking at, thinkers and social movements from the past and how those movements and thinkers had ideas and um, were engaged in activism and activity that has a lot of relevance to debates today that might seem quite distant and removed from them. Um, So that's the kind of device that I employ throughout the book and I do it in relation to various questions uh, that are posed particularly by the development of digital technology and I mean I should say I do think there's obviously limitations in that kind of approach to understanding history um, I don't think we're always doomed to repeat history uh, for either good or ill I think it's um it, there's many uh, interesting criticisms of that kind of idea of using history to be as a guide for the for the future but I think uh, provided you've got those caveats, I think it can be a very instructive exercise to look back uh, at movements and thinkers from the past and understand how they situated themselves within their society and how they could be influential. And it's one of my um, go-to strategies as an activist, I suppose, when I'm feeling a bit despondent or I wonder whether I'm being effective. I often think back and look and read about others who've confronted similar um, hurdles or difficulties or political crises in their own societies and it's always really exciting and and, and I think nourishing for the soul to read about others who've confronted these problems and, and done their best to overcome them or, or tried very hard um, even if they're unsuccessful had an impact I think that could be felt beyond their years. Um So it's a strategy that I've employed to keep myself engaged in politics even when it's difficult to do so and so I was hoping to kind of share that sentiment in my writing. So the way that I do that is, um, for example, I look at the issue of surveillance, both um, corporate surveillance and state surveillance. So for the purposes of something like corporate surveillance, I looked at how um, Freudian thinking actually has relevance to how we might understand the political economy of surveillance capitalism and how um, coming to know ourselves in a a Freudian way can be a very liberating way of reclaiming your identity from um, companies that are trying to uh, remake you as as a set of data points uh, for grooming as a consumer. Um, And so I try to link up those two kinds of ideas, Freudian thinking and surveillance capitalism, and find a way to to talk about perhaps breaking that model um, that is so dominant of our experience of the web. Um, in in state in relation to state surveillance, I try to draw a line between the enormous surveillance state that currently exists in the digital age and the origins of policing—the first modern police force, which was created um, in London in at the really the early stages of capitalism at the end of the 19th century, at the end of the 18th century, I should say, um, where uh, where there was a need for a, a professionalized um, force to surveil people, to keep and, and manage and maintain the status quo with its social divisions, and how surveillance is a very effective way of internalizing um, a sense that uh, you can't resist, that you need to comply. And that that's what a lot of digital surveillance does today as well. And the, the capacity of the internet is being used for that kind of purpose, which is a great tragedy in human terms. So that's kind of two examples of the way in which I employ this device. And then I look at other topics. Um, so things like the automation of work, and I look at the eight hour day movement as a way to kind of Reclaim, perhaps, or, or, or argue for a redistribution of the benefits of automation. I look at technical technological utopianism and the history of that idea, and how um, how so much of it is present in our current moment. With um, the when we look to people like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos as uh, as the visionaries of the future, and how that um, uh, that very naive technological utopianism conceals, I think, quite conservative politics. And I look at movements in the past that also were technologically utopian and. Their particular limitations and how they're they're similar in these ways. I look at um, other things like uh, the the history of the free software movement and look at how you know free so lots of software that we use every day has actually quite radic- a radical history uh, in terms of it was built by people who didn't really comply with the rules of the market they were kind of upending that um, before eventually software became a commodity that was a, you know a multi billion dollar industry and and um, has made a tiny section of the population very wealthy, whereas, in fact, software was perhaps best designed and, and continues to be best designed when it's done in a collaborative way rather than a proprietary one in line with the origins of the free software movement. Um, and so we might wish to, to revive it. So that's kind of the approach, and there's a few different other um, kind of technological questions, I suppose, that I consider using um, historical reference points as a way to understand our present conundrums, but then also Try and map out an alternative future.
0: So you've already touched a little bit upon that, but um, I'd like to to kind of delve a little deeper. So you begin um, the book by talking about our need for a usable past for a democratic future, which in and of itself is is a fantastic um, phrase. I found this very convincing. So could you um, break down what you mean by this usable past, and perhaps um, the history of that of that term and Perhaps then also touch a little bit of um on the connection between history and governance, because I think that's that's really a topic that's at, at the core of the book is this connection between history and governance.
1: Mm. Yeah, so the term a usable past comes from actually it has literary origins. There was a famous essay by an American literary critic talking about um Van Lick Brooks talking about the need to build up a usable past for the purposes of creating a particularly uh, American vision of literature. Um, and the essay is, I think, beautifully written. And he's talking about the idea of a usable past in quite a specific context, context. But it's an idea that I think is worth revisiting in this context as well, which is obviously why I framed the book around it. Uh, and so his kind of argument essentially is that um, we need to cast back and look and shine a light on particular moments in history that are relevant for the present to craft a narrative and a, a kind of um, a, a mode of thinking and understanding each other that might be able to um, reclaim. Uh, the, our capacity to change the future. And and he's talking about crafting a particularly American voice in the context of literature. And I think, uh, um, I guess for the left, I think we can recraft an idea of what technology is, how it's been developed, its potential, its failings in its current moment, but also what we could uh, turn its immense potential to in terms of fixing some of the most serious problems that we confront. And um, that's one of my concerns, actually, that uh, a lot of people understand who who are engaged in progressive movements understand technology as being this overwhelmingly um, negative force uh, that is um, framed around surveillance um and and the monetization of the web and that largely terrible things happen on the internet um and we might use it to to organize and and see um kind of movements explode online but really it's a force for evil and i I sort of wanted to say well let's craft a narrative where we can talk about its potential as well that it can be a, a an immense force for good um and i don't mean that in a naive way i mean as a repository of human knowledge of human connection um we, we have a huge amount of potential there that we didn't have in the past and it's our obligation, I think, to, to figure out, sorry about that, I don't know what happened in the background there, um, we have an obligation to figure out how we can transform um, transform its potential into something real. And, and you know, that's identifying the forces at play that uh, I think stop and limit um, uh, the potential of the internet. And the two that come to mind most obviously are the, the the market, the, the role of profit-making enterprises in um, in taking ownership of the web and, and transforming it into something that suits their purposes, and then also the state as a force that enters and tries to uh, use the potential of the web to manage and maintain Social division and the status quo. And so organizing to resist that, I wanted to create a past, a usable past, a sense of history that might be able to identify what's stopping us, what's holding us back from making use of the potential of technology and open up our thinking a bit, um, not in an effort to be naive utopians, but as a way of, um, understanding how immensely powerful this technology will be to solve problems that we're confronting, um, like public participation, like climate change, like, um, uh, like wealth inequality, the the organising that we'll need to do um, to change how society is structured to address some of those problems will require technological solutions and, and how they are produced will re- rely on our political organising and who holds power in society. And so that's what I was getting at in terms of understanding the usable past as a way of unlocking an alternative future.
0: And I think, you know, there you're really fitting into this this quite new trend um, of historians who are talking about reconceptualizing the role of history and also of historians um, in society and politics. And I'm thinking of, you know, people like David Armitage and the History Manifesto, you know, mm. historians like to talk about the uses and abuses um, of, of history, really focusing on the abuses. But there does seem to be a, a shift towards thinking about history um, as something that is, as you say, usable um, in a non-naive and political way. So I, I was really, yeah. um, I was really touched by that, and kind of really uh, saw how the book is kind of fitting into this this shift, which I think is really important, um, not just for the historical disciplines, but also uh, in terms of society and politics.
1: Well, I, I mean, I must say, of course, I, I have a degree in history, but I, I'm not a practicing historian by any stretch, and. I don't think it's foolish, though, to suggest that uh, when you write history, you are engaging in a political act. And, um, of course, I think many people could accuse my approach to history as being um, simplistic or potentially um, uh, limiting or ignoring some of the complexities of, of, of things from the past as they relate to the present. But I think also the whole discipline um, is obviously uh, a practice in um, in understanding the past from the perspective of the present which is invariably not something that's neutral or objective um and to that end I think I'm prepared to accept that criticism or invite dialogue in that respect um with an understanding that that we're all doing something (laughs) along the same lines and so you know you may as well be honest about it one of the motivating um stories I suppose that got me really keen to kind of finish this project and get it out into the world is I was reading an article about um a guy called Ben Horowitz, um, who some of your listeners may know is a, a, well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. And he gives this presentation where he identifies one of his heroes from the past. Uh, and he talks about his hero being Toussaint Louverture, who was the, uh, rev- the revolutionary leader in, in Haiti, um, in their struggle for independence. And, um, what, Ben Horowitz does, because it's ca- kind of discombobulating to think of a venture capitalist having, um, you know, a Haitian revolutionary as his hero, um, was he says, oh, you know, um, Toussaint Louverture changed the culture of his country and CEOs, um, you can change the culture of your, um, of your company and your country as well. He draws a line between revolutionaries in the past and entrepreneurs of the present. And my point is that um, if we aren't going to talk about history, other people will and they will do it with a particular political motive in mind and someone like Ben Horowitz does it because he wants to valorize tech entrepreneurs as being the people who bring progress to society and that I think is very worthy of criticism and it requires, um, you know, obviously academic interrogation but also mainstream understandings of history, of historical debates, um, of an understanding that history can be interpreted in multiple ways but arguing for a particular cause or a particular interpretation um, with, you know, with reasoning behind it is a job that I think we need to get people doing, not just allow the venture capitalists to do it for us, um, and not just that it's just the preserve of academia either, that debates that are existing on the ground that struggle for rights um, in the workplace or in, in public life uh, do, I think, need a sense of history so they can both debunk it and and reclaim it for their own purposes. And And that was one of the key sources of motivation. Perhaps it was just my burning anger, I'm not sure, but um, it, that story really got me uh, motivated to to
0: continue with this project and get it out into the world. So you, you do that and you do that very well um, throughout um, the chapter. So I th- I'd like to just skip ahead a little bit to chapter four, which is um, wonderfully entitled, Technology is as biased as its makers, exploding cars, racist algorithms, and design beholden to the bottom line. So this is um for many people who work in you know digital humanities and digital sociology um a very kind of known concept but could you explain this this issue of um technological bias um and kind of you know algorithmic bias um, to listeners perhaps with with reference to the to the incredibly shocking um case of professor latanya Sweeney which you mm. um, outlined in this?
1: Yes. Uh, so Latanya Sweeney is an African-American professor at Harvard University and um, she's very well qualified. And um, I, I heard her speak about this when I was in the United States. She was um, she was looking for a paper of hers online. And so she Googled her name and the advertisement that came up under her name when she was looking for the paper said, Latanya Sweeney arrested with a question mark. And uh, she was kind of curious about this because she she'd not been arrested and um she didn't have a criminal record and she clicked through the ad and it was a service uh which collates public records about people um and it it demonstrated that she she didn't in fact have a criminal record but of course the text of the ad would suggest potentially otherwise and one of her colleagues who had a much more white name i I can't quite recall if it was adam I was going to say Adam Smith there, but I don't think it was that. It was Adam um, Barnes or something. He Googled his name and um, he he just he got an ad that was similar, but it didn't have the inflammatory headline. It had a different set of text, which didn't suggest that he'd been arrested, but it said, um, you know, record checks for, for this man. And um, the argument, well, what it spurred for her was a uh, curiosity as to why uh, the ads that were being produced or, or thrown up in response to queries were articulated in different ways, and she investigates this and reverse engineers essentially the Google Ads words process and works out that African-American names are more likely to produce a certain text associated with that particular advertiser uh, that were inflammatory and suggested that that African-American people had criminal records, which is an awful insight into how um, there's there's essentially some organisation that goes on that people are encountering the web individually and don't perhaps realise that these trends are going on in the background that are in fact quite biased and racist towards people um, and it's kind of unthinking uh, because Google's you know, maintains that it doesn't choose the the kinds of words that are put in ads. It doesn't have a responsibility to do anything about it. Um, And for my money, I think that's an inadequate answer. And they have a responsibility to look into these things and to to catch this kind of racism before it becomes imbued into the system um, or or written into our digital lives. And um, the argument essentially is that There's all sorts of ways in which we can code decision-making for machines to do based on certain kind of data. Uh, Too often we're seeing examples where the outcomes might be biased in a particular way, often along the lines of race, often along the lines of gender. And in all sorts of other ways as well. There's lots of other famous examples. Amazon ran a, um, ran a their resumes for a particular job in response to a job ad through an algorithm that produced only men as being appropriate candidates for the role. And that's probably based on past conduct in Amazon in terms of hiring. As you can imagine, that's a logical decision for the computer to make. But someone's made the decision to code the system like that. And we need to ask why that's happened. And we need to think about these problems and try and catch them before they are deployed on unsuspecting people. And there's also the people who are doing interesting work on those kinds of ideas. But I like this chapter because what I'm trying to do in this chapter is talk about why law and regulation is important. And, and as a lawyer, um, you can see why that holds a Uh, special place in my heart, that argument. Um, And what I do is I talk about the design process uh, and how you can regulate the design process to make it more safe. And this is something that we've done before. And the example I use is the Ford Pinto crisis, um, which is a scandal that you learn about in law school, whereby Ford um, allowed a car to go into production, even though they knew it had Very serious safety flaws uh, because they were motivated to do so in order to um, capture a certain market share against its competitors, Uh, and it's kind of an appalling example of how design was um, was uh, required to comply with the needs of the bottom line, and the people who paid the price were customers who, um, in the case of the Ford Pinto, uh, burnt to death in their vehicles, and there's there's it's unclear how many, but. Thousands possibly were were died in this way uh, and it was a design fault that was easily fixable, quite cheaply fixable, um, but Ford didn't have the interest in doing so. Uh, and then I start to talk about why regulation of the car industry has in fact been very effective at making it safer and that regulation of um, how we design algorithms in all their different contexts I think would make the internet and our engagement with it much safer as well.
0: Mm, and I think this chapter is really fantastic. Um- for demonstrating, um, the connections between history and technology, because, you know, um, a lot of the biases and a lot of the kind of racism and subjectivities that we build into code and into algorithms are in many ways, historical remnants. Mm. So we're building, we're, we're actually building and encoding the past into our kind of digital futures. And I, I found that really, um, really, uh, really kind of an important case to be, to be made. And you made it um, incredibly strongly. Um, but I, I want to then move a little bit on to chapter five, which is um, technological utopianism is dangerous, um, where you talk about the Paris Commune of 1871 and what we might learn from their reorganization of society. Um, could you explain a little bit how you envisage this connection between the Paris Commune and, and kind of current governance um, and society and and why you make this particular kind of warning against technological utopianism? Mm.
1: Yeah, well, so to, the setup, I suppose, is that I feel that a lot of talk that comes out of um, people who are in positions of power in the, in the public sphere um, imp- people who are influential uh, commentators on these topics um, can often, I think it can be quite undiscerning and utopian in terms of how we understand the potential of technology. And, um, you know, a good example is Jeff Bezos recently talking about how he wanted there to be a population of one trillion and we'd all live outside of the Earth's atmosphere in space um, and people would, you know, come and visit Earth uh, down you know, for holidays and people were like, what an amazing vision for society. And meanwhile, these are the, you know, this is the same guy who um, could do much more to address something like climate change, who, um, you know, re- uh, leaves his workforce to toil in, in misery. Um, and so what could we expect from a world in which Jeff Bezos is um, very powerful where there's a trillion people, probably more of the same. And I find it very frustrating that a lot of the discourse around um both visions for the future generally but also in relation to technology specifically, um, that kind of discussion we often look to people like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg for the sources of inspiration and I think they're actually quite narrow in their thinking because they've made their money in a particular way and all they can think of is more of the same, which for everybody else is not a very rosy future. So that's the context in which I wanted to, to kind of question the idea that we should be utopian about technology and how we could also be optimistic about it. And it got me looking back at previous movements for... Um related to technological utopianism and one of them most obviously is uh, perhaps some of your readers know a, a man called Edward Bellamy wrote a book which was a technological utopian book um, in the late 19th century um, and it talks about what a world might look like after someone fell asleep in a kind of state of mesmerism. <laughs> um, it's all very 19th century Victorian but uh, it's an American book I should say but um, he wakes up in a new world in which is a new world order and it's it's What's happened is technology has been accelerated, so all the problems of the 19th century have been solved, like labour unrest, like the the filth and misery of the Industrial Revolution. And um, it was an extremely popular book. There were Bellamy clubs across the United States and and many other writers kind of followed suit, um, and it really captured the imagination of people in in the late 19th century. And I kind of, um, in the course of reading about this, um, I felt it was. Kind of, I found it kind of troubling because it was a very similar kind of approach. If we just invest in technology; the problems associated with it, the social, political ones, will be solved. And that struck me as a very naive proposition. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that, in fact, this kind of movement of technological utopianism was a reaction of sorts to um, that other big event of the nineteenth, late nineteenth century um the Paris Commune in 1871 that you mentioned. And there's a dialogue going on um, between William Morris, who I am very fond of as a figure in history, um, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with, mostly for his beautiful decorative designs, but also for being a socialist. Um, he's in conversation with Edward Bellamy about his book and describing how... How narrow-minded it was, and how uninventive and unimaginative it was, um, uh, because he was essentially committed to the same form of society, just with the acceleration of technology and the assumptions that would fix problems was a mistake. And of course, William Morris was a great defender of the Paris Commune and. What, is, what I think is going on there is really that the Paris Commune was this incredible experiment in applied democracy, um, that people upended all sorts of previously accepted wisdom, um, ideas about how, uh, what is, uh, you know, the right things to in terms of culture and taste, the right way to do business, the right way to work, and and start to reorganise society in very concrete ways, um, using essentially applied forms of democracy to do so. Um, And of course, it it was crushed, as I'm sure your listeners know, but the legacy of it is still quite contentious. And I think it could have gone two ways, an embrace of the idea that applied democracy is a good thing for society, or an idea that that kind of experiment was wrong and that in fact what we need is technocrats in charge to accelerate the development of technology and that will solve our problems. And so that's how I kind of get to this idea that perhaps what we need is kind of more of a a commitment to understanding applied forms of democracy rather than outsourcing the problem solving of society to technocrats engineers and coders and it's an argument really that we need um, more engagement, more public participation in some of these questions rather than less.
0: And I think you make that very clear then um, in the in one of the following chapters which is um, on collaborative work is liberating and effective where you, you stay within um, the 19th century and I think we could possibly come back to that later how the 19th century um, is a very very kind of important turning point in kind of historical Um, Point uh, for a lot of Mm -hmm. the chapters that you you write, but um, so in 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 this chapter you talk about um the Luddites um and you argue um this kind of point that a lot of our current dilemmas with technology um are kind of repeating themes that have just been continually cropping up um throughout history. So, do you think you could um outline for readers I don't know um uh, sorry for listeners I don't know how familiar they are with kind of what the Luddites were doing and what they were calling for. Um, But could you could you kind of introduce them and and perhaps some of the parallels that you see between them and some of these current day themes like hacker culture, open Mm. source code?
1: Yeah, I love the Luddites. Um, I always think they're another, another set of great characters from history that are, are fun to learn about. They're a favorite among Silicon Valley types to talk about because they're always lamenting the idea of being a Luddite, which I, I think is always very amusing because, um, I'm not sure they fully understood the historical significance of the Luddites as a, a movement, it's traditionally associated with being kind of anti-technology. That you break machines, that you don't want to be um, engaging with the development of technology and adopting new forms of working or engagement with um, technology because you're anti-technology. And in fact, of course, the I mean, I should say the actual Luddites developed a reputation for that because they were into um, frame breaking. They were they were smashing technology um, throughout the throughout England in in the in the nineteenth century and. Really the only way I think to understand them is not as people who are against progress or technology, but almost as a, a labor movement. They were contesting the idea that machines would take away um labor artisan labor that would degrade humans into being hogs in a machine, um, rather than people with autonomy and, and craftsmanship and, and engagement with their labor and um and you know, being able to appreciate and see the, the work that they do in the world around them. And um so they were they, but they were very contentious and um one of the people that defended them uh, in a speech to the House of Lords, uh, I believe it was the House of Lords, was Lord Byron who um, articulated uh, a defence of them, saying, uh, complaining that um, using law to try and crush them as a movement was a mistake because what they were protesting had some moral weight to it, that uh, in the Industrial Revolution was causing misery and, and degrading uh, people who were doing this kind of work. And so that movement to break frames actually came from a place of... of Moral good that, that ought to be paid attention to. And I mention Lord Byron because uh, the chapter is kind of framed around his daughter, who's um, uh, Ada Lovelace, who, as some of your listeners may know, was, um, is widely believed or attributed with being the first ever computer programmer. And so I talk about her because she um, made the leap between calculation and computation. Um, And what's interesting about her, of course, is that she's a woman, which is not what you'd usually hear in relation to talking about technology, that it's a bro culture and full of men, but in fact, a woman was the one who kicked it all off, um, which is a nice little um, uh, circularity in in that part of history. But the point of the chapter is to say that um, actually the origins of the software development and lots of software that we use today, that actually – came in conditions of of freedom, working in essentially um, a a kind of form of working that wasn't touched by the market. And this is kind of the early days of the free software movement in in universities, mainly in America, but also other places where people were experimenting with these new things called computers, with writing programs for them, much in the same way that someone like Ada Lovelace did. Um, And they were working in kind of very collaborative ways. There was no sense that you owned what you rota's code there was no sense that uh you would monetize that and turn it into something else and that all changed quite quickly um, throughout the late 70s and 80s and um of course it became a multi-trillion dollar industry which is what it is now uh, but it's interesting i think that there is still this kind of culture among um tech uh, geeks where They like fiddling with their computer. They like knowing what it does. They like looking under the hood. They don't like to be told what to do by a company who makes proprietary software. And I kind of appreciate that approach to understanding and using technology. And, I, and, and they like to work together as well to kind of fix problems. They find problems, they solve them, and then they share it with others. And that, that's a really effective way of writing computer programs, of, of creating source code, because it helps to see more problems. It helps to make um, technology that serves its users rather than say serves a company who, who profits from developing it and, and updating it and I think we ought to revive that and look to to more um, to more kind of open source products but also um, making sure that, those kinds of work environments is somewhere, somewhere that we can cultivate, that we can we can make them better because of course they had terrible limitations. These kinds of workplaces, often these universities in the United States were were again full of men. But I think the idea that you might work collaboratively without um, necessarily being beholden to the needs of the market, that you might share your work um, and that you might um, together identify problems, solve them for yourself, but share those solutions with others. That's a good approach to developing software, and we ought to revive it as much we, as we can. And we ought to bring as many people we can into that way of working because it's very effective. And, and that's what I'm trying to explain in that chapter tell that story of the free and open software, open source software movement, and kind of make the point that um, the tech industry wasn't always one that was dominated by um, billion dollar companies, that it was a bit um, rat baggy and uh, a bit alternative and a bit um, anti market. and And that's some good origins that we
0: ought to revive. So a particularly salient um, chapter in the book, considering the current um, global kind of political climate, um, and one that really struck me actually is is called Digital Citizenship is a Collective Endeavour, Tom Paine's Revolutionary Idea of Public Participation. And here you use um, Thomas Paine's political philosophy to explore concepts of rights, enfranchisement, uh, political and social participation um but in the digital age and i was really really taken by this chapter and i wonder if you could expand um upon your point a little bit that access to the network um is fundamental for engagement participation and and democratic decision making
1: mm. Yeah, well, Tom Paine I think is the only kind of founding father there of the United States that I really like and he's often forgotten I think in discussions about the origins of the United States and um, or he's often claimed as a a figure uh, by the right because he was very critical of government um, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, But he's someone I think that was contending with the the problem of a political system that might work in theory, but with economic inequality, it would really cease to function. Um, I mean, he kind of phrased it in different ways, but I think that's where the idea leads, that you can have a very good formal system, but to keep it accountable, you need people who are able to do that work. Uh, and for that reason, he was always a critic of government. Um, but he, he made the point that, you know, voting really is not enough. And I think um, we need to kind of build spaces that are democratic, not just assume that the formalistic nature of our democracy will mean that it works. Uh, and that's the idea that I'm exploring there. So the network, I think basically we all need universal access to the internet and I think that should be a policy of governments that are sensible in the 21st century, trying to cultivate that so that people can engage um not just in public participation but in work and cultural life as well, uh, and that's never been more obvious than in our particular moment where so many people are required to work from home. But then I think we also need to, to consider how the network can build in its own inequalities and there's all sorts of ways in which that, that can happen. Um, I talk a little bit about net neutrality, which is a, a perennial issue on the left, which um, is, or, or, or in digital spaces, I should say, uh, which is about how we structure um, the rules around how traffic moves through the network and should we prioritize some form of traffic over others? Uh, And it's a debate that's been raging in the United States for a long time, but there's a, there's a strong lobby there, um, which has only been emboldened under President Trump to actually allow certain private industries Um, and private companies to allow their traffic to be prioritised over others, Uh, and that this would, in fact, I think, uh, destabilise and and really undermine some of the key benefits of the internet um, and the open nature of it, Uh, and it would be very destructive to our sense of um, public life uh, and, uh, you know, our dependence on technology, that we shouldn't be allowing others to um, because they have wealth and, and power to be able to, to destroy one of the, the, the most important developments, I think, of the last 100 years. And so it's a claim about why net neutrality is not some obscure technological debate. It's actually something that's quite critical to the functioning of our democracy uh, and we need to start finding ways to allow people to participate in the network but also that the network is built in a way that it facilitates that participation as equals uh, rather than allowing certain forces in society to
0: gain influence and control and shape the network around their interests. And another chapter um, that I think then follows on from this, that it has so much resonance for 2020 is is the one that you call the digital world is an environment that needs to be cared for. Mm. Ancient forms of governance hold relevance for modern infrastructure. So I have to admit on reading just the title of this chapter, I had assumed in my incredibly Western mindset that you were going to be pivoting around um, the classical and ancient Western um, political canon, um, mm-hmm. in which we to talk about democratic governance. so so that already, for me, was just such a um a terrible reminder of the bias as someone who is an intellectual historian brings to the table already, which um we can probably circle back to. But so, in this chapter, you actually locate your argument in ancient and in many ways, still very contemporary um indigenous philosophies, histories, and ideas of governance. And from that, you propose an entirely different, intellectual history of digital infrastructure and technology. Um, mm. Now, I hope it's it's probably very clear to, to listeners why Indigenous peoples and cultures need to play a more significant role in, in societies and politics across the globe. But can you perhaps explain the types of futures, so coming back to this concept of the future, um, mm. the types of futures you see as being shaped by Indigenous concepts of governance that you explore <laughs> in the chapter?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was just critically important to talk about this issue in part because of of what you described, which I think is, um, common when we think about the history of philosophy or, um, or, um, history around ideas of governance, we usually have a Western frame in mind. And, um, I'm, I'm obviously Australian, so, uh, I've, you know, lived on, um, Aboriginal land that was never ceded for most of my life. Uh, and, um, this is the oldest con- continuously surviving civilization in the world. And, um, They've survived on a continent that is quite hostile in um, ecological terms, and uh, managed to thrive. Uh, and it's only in the last two hundred years that um, that society's really been decimated in, um, in quite unforgivable terms. And. Uh, I think that we are going through a bit of a moment in Australia at least where we're starting to talk a little bit more about what we might have lost but also how we might be able to learn from those cultures particularly given uh, the ecological moment that we're facing. Um, you know Aboriginal people survived here for tens of thousands of years uh, possibly between 60 and 80 thousand years uh, and it's only in the last 200 years that the um, that the environment has become so significantly hostile to human human pe- the human population and uh, I think that, that is telling. So What um, I'm getting at is are there things that we can learn from Aboriginal culture in Australia? I also look a little bit at um Maori culture in New Zealand and and some Canadian indigenous thinkers there who talk about how um political thinking can be influenced by indigenous modes of governance and and ideas around these questions and I'm I'm trying to look at how we might be able to learn from um those societies um while acknowledging of course that they're diverse within them uh, and there's huge differences among them that we might wish to start um looking to those people at least for some guidance about how we might be able to get through our present moment and what I think is the overwhelming kind of um, lesson that you learn from Aboriginal people of Australia is that they have a very different relationship with land, not as something to be exploited, but as something that they belong to, uh, that they have obligations to, that they collectively own. They're not, um, the, It's not an individual conception of ownership. And as a resource that is life-giving to them um, and a source of knowledge and, um, and yeah, sustainable life, uh, you can see why that's been a very effective way of um, surviving in this hostile continent and I suppose my my argument really is that the internet is an incredible resource that belongs to all of us it's life-giving it's now the backbone of things like food production systems it's obviously the repository of human knowledge in many ways Um, it's got you know uh, ways in which we connect and um, participate in public life and for that reason it's got to be something that um, we have to care for better, and we have to treat as a resource that belongs to all of us, rather than something that people can exploit uh, and own and control at the expense of other people. Uh, and I think that um, you know, there's points at which that all these metaphors kind of break down. But I think it's a it's a very telling. Um, it's it's very telling i suppose that this kind of western mode of domination exploitation um and and use of resources until their depletion um is a philosophy that's been taken by a small few into online life and and you were talking before about how we're encoding kind of things that we've done in the past into our digital future and i think this is true of this approach to how we engage in online life as well that um you know internet is there for advertising and exploiting people and getting people to do things they don't want to do um the the, the, the hardware the hardware of the internet the the um the, the wires and the the cables that, that carry this traffic there to be owned and exploited and then people are to pay certain companies to be able to access it rather than um you know another approach which could be okay well this is communal infrastructure let's figure out how to make it work effectively for everybody not just a small section of society and let's protect it so that future generations will be able to benefit from that kind
0: of encoding
1: rather than the one that we currently have.
0: And in that chapter, you give a fantastic example um, from New Zealand of um, how a, a river comes to, to be a, a, a kind of legal entity, a legal person. Mm. Um, and I think that, you know, this is not only just a very interesting um, kind of case that you present, but with regards to actually reconceptualizing what um it means to be um uh, part of society, what the law means, I think you know you give some some excellent examples about how we actually need to be to be stripping right back um and re kind of thinking about what it means to be um kind of part of a system and part of a society mm-hmm. um I don't know if you, you kind of wanted to maybe expand a little bit about about the um the example from New Zealand, just just for listeners who perhaps are not aware of this, but I mean, it it really is very striking, um, especially for those who you know have are perhaps interested in political theory or intellectual history, because it really is um, from a Western perspective so incredibly um, alien, I suppose, mm. in terms of of how we consider um, legal fictions and kind of legal identities.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And as a lawyer, I suppose I always think about legal personhood and uh what is signified by that and um and how uh we're very happy for a company even though that's a creation a fiction to be considered a legal person but something real like a a natural resource or a natural um uh, feature or land um is is not able to have its own personality which i think is, is telling the way the law has evolved is certainly around the mode of um property of course uh, and the, the the way of interpreting the natural world through that lens as property to be exploited rather than having its own identity and and worthy of respect and the story that you mentioned is about how um a certain river in um in new zealand was granted a, a legal personality which was a, you know a very um novel kind of idea but actually has a few different precedences around precedents around the world um but you know the the what I talk about a little bit in that story is how um, the negotiations took place between the New Zealand government, who I think um, was, you know, certainly engaged in good faith negotiations with the the local Maori tribe who um, who spoke for that country, and uh, how discombobulating it was for both of them to, to have this... Kind of category, or in terms of understanding the land, because of course uh, the New Zealand government understood ownership in a particular way, associated with rights, since property is a bundle of rights for, about which you can um, you can work with or you can exploit. Whereas um, the Maori people were um, kind of completely um, at odds with this; they don't understand land in that way. Um, I mean, they're not they're not stupid they understand how 21st century conceptions of land work but it's in spiritual terms in moral terms um in political terms they all they understood land to be something that is owned collectively, that you have responsibility for, that you look after, and that you, you're you're not an owner to dominate the country, but in fact, you're a uh, custodian for future generations. And kind of even getting the basic language in place was a difficulty that this negotiation faced. Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing to remember, because we take so much for granted in terms of how we arrange society around legal rights and around legal personhood. And it comes at a cost, which is that these collective resources end up being depleted um, and exploited and dominated by those who hold power. And maybe we wish to start revising that and thinking much more expansively, learning from others as to how we might be able to structure ownership um, and collective ownership of common resources in ways that protect them for future generations rather than allow them to be exploited and dominated by a small select
0: few. And something that really comes up in this chapter and, and actually which recurs throughout the um, the book, which I, I wanted to touch on, um, is you you put a lot of importance into thinking about the digital world as a place or mm. an environment which has a material nature um, rather than as a service or some kind of other more abstract concept. So basically it's a thing that we have collectively built and mm. uh, are continuing to build rather than like a phenomenon which is acting upon society. So what do you think are the potential repercussions of this shift in perception? You know, if we were to, you know, as a as a society, as a public globally, to kind of rethink um, the digital world in this way, you know, what what would be the outcome?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I don't think any, anyone's put it to me like that, but I, I think that's very telling. Um, I, I appreciate that perspective. It's um, it's an interesting way to think about it because, of course, you can think about the internet as um, you know, switches, as, as cables, as, um, as hardware, as software, and then you can think about it as a constructed political place that you engage with to do work, to find love, to um, talk to your family, to kind of enjoy culture and consume things like that. Um, and I, I think the idea of, of understanding it as this construct allows us then to question why it is this way um too often society is treated as an object that technology does things to, that we're not a group of people with agency and desire, that in fact technology is like this force of nature, it's like the weather. It just develops in a particular linear way. Um it's it's always just astonishing and 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 surprising, but it's not as though it's something that we can influence. And um that's a perspective that has been created for a particular purpose. Um I'm I mean I don't mean that in a conspiracy theory way. But what I mean is it's constructed. It's something that we can question and, and ask um, to be changed. And uh, that's the idea, I suppose, but about thinking about it as a place that we can put effort into understanding its building blocks um, from all layers of, of the internet from its base layer its cables all the way up to how you might engage with the interface and think about ways in which we might be able to do that in inclusive and collective ways that are non-discriminatory that don't carry over oppression from um, the, the world that we inhabit as people uh, carry that into our digital spaces that we have a chance to disorganize those kinds of forms of oppression and discrimination and reorganize society around um, much more radical ideas of 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 equality and um, fellowship and um, collectivity. Uh, and and so I think thinking about it as a place in that way is helpful for um, understanding it as something that we might be able to have an influence on rather than something that we have to just simply accept.
0: And, and that leads very nicely actually into my next question, which is reading through the book, you know, something that kept recurring to me um, is is concerns digital and technological literacy and, you know, basic knowledge of of digital sociology. So, you know, I teach digital humanities, so I'm perpetually aware of how um, in spite of, you know, growing public knowledge about the perniciousness of Amazon and Facebook and, you know, these other, you know, internet megaliths, um, you know, people are still being exploited by digital platforms or just generally unaware of what's, what's going on in the background Hmm. um, of the softwares that they use, of the databases that they're using. And, you know, this goes for, you know, esteemed academics, you know, they're all using Google books, but without any, Perhaps knowledge of you know the representativeness of of you know what's actually out there, or how um you know, um you know o, uh, OCR softwares are are you know terrible you know things like mm. this. Um, and your m- book makes a really really clear case for why tech companies and governments should be more transparent and, of course, better regulated. And and mm. you know this is the most important structural change that, of course, needs to be to be made. But is there something else that can be done perhaps at lower levels? You know, should these issues be given greater stock in school curriculums or at universities? Should there be, you know, greater public awareness campaigns? You know, if I think of, you know, digital public awareness campaigns, they're always to do with, oh, you're going to get hacked by this mm. person who's going to take your credit card details. But, you know, should should there be more awareness, you know, saying actually when you're using these technologies, you need to be aware of these biases that are being built into them. You need to be aware of X, Y, and Z in order to create this much more um, – kind of, I guess, literate um, kind of public when it comes to, you know, digital sociology?
1: Mm. Yeah, because I don't think we really have a choice. If we're going to have a functioning Mm. public sphere, we're going to have to have people who, in spite of uh, the – Algorithms that Facebook uses to keep people on device to, um, to to keep people entertained and draw them in and give them what they more of what they want in a sense or cultivate what they want at, to to create a, a kind of relationship of addiction with the platform, which invariably leads to more extremism um, and more more um, division between people. No two people see the same internet. No two people see the same social media platform, which is breaking down public space. So. If we are going to maintain a, a kind of idea of public space, of dialogue, of um, of a collective sense of you know humanity as it may take form in a particular society, we absolutely need to have um, citizens who and, and people who have a knowledge of how these systems work. And uh, you know, I, I do think we need to kind of turf legal concepts that might um, be underpinning some of the uh, benighted ways in which we engage with these platforms, like the idea that you consent to the terms and conditions of a particular platform or a service um, in all their, you know, tens of thousands of words is a fiction so why do we continue to allow that to happen and why would we um why wouldn't we start to think about how privacy I suppose is I I use I say privacy I suppose because I think privacy is often a substitute word for lots of other words like freedom and autonomy um how we can kind of re-encode in the legal system a form of Protection or capacity for individuals to protect their privacy meaningfully without necessarily understanding it through contractual um, means. So, of course, there's things that we need to do at a legal level, but absolutely, I think part of the way in which we're going to achieve that kind of reform, because it doesn't come out of nowhere, is to empower um, people to ask these kinds of questions. To appreciate how um, these systems work and and start to ask why we can't have it better. And I'm sure that starts at a young age. I think it starts with with parents when they have the time to be able to talk to their children. I'm not sure it's always easy, but that kind of digital literacy that you're going into a world that will try and influence you and and, um, manipulate you in a variety of ways. Here's how you can be an active person that's that's a critical thinker and and, and meets these um, kinds of Presentations with a a mind that is questioning and um and and that builds a a basis for greater knowledge and capacity to challenge these kinds of um, structures and and norms. I mean, I think it's education in schools as well as going to play play an enormous role. I mean, I would say I think the technological community. I'm, I'm very excited by the kinds of radical organising we've seen in places like Silicon Valley, but I think as a general proposition, I'm really looking forward to that movement breaking out and becoming something that's more normalised um, and more widespread because I think we do need more collaboration with technologists um, across the board in all of kind of civil society but also um, more generally people who are critical thinkers rather than just the leaders of the industry who are helping to make policy to ask those critical questions, to develop um, educational programs that can be effective for holding these these kinds of big companies to heal or to holding them to account. So I'm looking forward to a world in which there's more radicals who've come out of the technology space (laughs) and more people with critical thinking skills that can contribute to normalising the idea that we should question um, how we engage with the digital world and we should become active citizens in trying to change it. Uh, And I think that will be a big part of it. Um, and, And then, of course, an openness from those who are already engaged in that kind of activism and work. To understanding these issues as is technological as well, I mean you're right to point out that education will be a key source of it. So I do think if you're if you're a, an academic or an activist working in relation to public education, um, that's a technological issue, and that's true for lots of um, lots of different uh, kind of uh, movements and civil society organisations. The point being that digital rights aren't just something for digital rights activists to advocate on; it's actually something that all organisations need to start embracing, becoming aware of. And start advocating for in their own particular field, because that's how we'll build up the capacity to create movements that can hold lawmakers accountable, that can create better policy, and that can take on some of the most powerful technology companies that, but for these kinds of movements, will continue to shape the web according to their own interests.
0: So that, that actually segues so nicely into my, into my final question for you, which is mm. actually, you know, the book cuts across so many different fields, you know, it's science and technology studies, digital sociology, politics, history. Um, But, you know, this is the intellectual history channel. So um, Mm -hmm. I wondered if you could briefly um, reflect on the significance of your work for intellectual history, you know, that being the the history of ideas, their genesis, evolution, and most importantly, their articulation and context, Mm -hmm. Um, and perhaps the role that, you know, intellectual historians or history can play in, in ushering in this democratic future that you propose, because... Circling back to something that you said at the beginning, you know, um, I was really struck by something you said in your introduction um, regarding current-day revisionism, which um presents, you know, this outlook that so many intellectual historians have have really worked quite tirelessly to try and undermine. And mm. um, I'm gonna quote from you here where you say, it's these revolutionary moments recast as cultural shifts generated by disruptive thought leaders, mm-hmm. history understood as the march of great entrepreneurial CEOs. This kind of thinking sees the future as defined by universal progress rather than by a messy, contradictory struggle between different interests and forces and never driven by the aspirations of those from below. It reduces the value of human agency to entrepreneurialism and empty consumerism. And I mean, firstly, I mean, the prose is just fantastic and, and incredibly captivating, but um it really kind of hit me as a wave as someone who you know, is part of um, a discipline which has really tried to do this, to, to you know, think about history from below, to think about you know, um, history as not just uh, this kind of universal progress. Um, but yet we see these, you know, as you say, entrepreneurial CEOs, these revolutionary leaders um, mm. who are kind of perpetuating this type of history that you know, people have worked to try and undermine. So I'd be really interested to, to kind of hear your thoughts on that.
1: Oh, well, this is the moment where we need people like you and all your fellow intellectual historians more than ever, I feel, because actually I think that um, the idea that um, we're on a march of universal progress has now been proven wrong more so than probably um, uh, it has been for some time. Uh, we, You know, we're looking down the barrel of catastrophic climate change. Um, we're now experiencing uh, an enormous crisis given that's, that's often when we talk about this pandemic, it's, it's treated as a natural phenomenon almost when it's very much a social and political one. Uh, how we respond to it is guided by, um, the social political context, but also the fact of its cre of its, um, creation was, is, is a function of all sorts of social political practices that exist in relation to, uh, the natural world and, and how we engage with it. Um, and uh you know in, in the context in which also we you know we're seeing radical movements of people demanding racial justice and an end to police brutality uh these are the exact times where we need people who can articulate in accessible ways how it is that history happens or why y- y- you can make an argument about um what history is and what, what purpose it serves, how it's written and, and by whom and what that does, uh, but also that, um, you know, that how we fight for a better world um, can be difficult and, and not always straightforward and that it's a contentious process and that that's one of the things about democracy, I suppose, that it's always going to be, um, uh, it's, it's never peaceful in, in in the intellectual sense. It's always a, a clash of ideas and um, a conflict of of people's viewpoints which is what makes it healthy that 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 kind of criticism is what we want to instill not as an aberration but in fact a norm that we want dialogue and debate and questions to be asked about how we're um, moving into the future and not allow or outsource that to just a select few who get to frame the debate this is the moment in which that Overton window is really being expanded and I think there's a real appetite amongst a whole generation of people who are now looking at a world that will be much worse than what their parents experienced, who are hungry for um, ideas about how to change that and what we might be able to do um, to safeguard the future of humanity. It's never been a more pressing question than ever. Um, I, I'm keen to talk about technology because I think it offers some of the great potential to overcome some of these problems. I think that any kind of solution to things like climate change and, and even, um, you know, police violence will involve some form of technology. So I think it's really critical that we have the tools intellectually to make sure uh, that those um, solutions are applied to good ones and not bad ones. Um, but I think absolutely uh, as a general point, this is the time more than ever that we need intellectual historians to be able to offer up um, guidance, um, suggestions and to collaborate with social movements who are struggling um, so with such tremendous energy and force to try and create a better future.
0: Oh well you you flatter us. <laughs> you flatter the intellectual historians, of which we are entirely delighted. But um, um thank you, Lizzie. We've we've taken up a huge amount of your time. So um before we leave you, could you just give us a glimpse of what you're currently working on or perhaps where um the book Future Histories has has now led you?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think um it's it's been so wonderful, obviously is part of what you do with the book is you talk to people who are reading it and um, the audiences uh, that I envisaged do present themselves in the physical format whenever I do an event for a book. So it's always just so lovely to meet people who are perhaps encountering technological questions for the first time or perhaps engaging with them in a meaningful way and are looking for a guide to do that and then also technologists who are actually engaging with the political questions um, uh, and figuring out how to do that and it's it's very gratifying to see that work in in real life and I'm hopeful that that will be the legacy of the book too moving forward um I think as a lawyer who I mean at the moment I'm a uh, I have been for a while but a class actions lawyer I love doing class actions literally large numbers of people coming together to hold one you know a large powerful um entity accountable um and I, I work in the field of corporate misconduct I think I may experiment um what I'm increasingly thinking is looking at um some of the political economy of law and how law and economics works because I sometimes think that a lot of people find law to be um a bit mystifying or also a source of moral guidance at times when I'm not sure it warrants that kind of accolade um and I think there's very um there's also Sorts of ways in which you can look at the legal system as being uh, influenced in um, perhaps unseen ways by economics. And I would like to put that in accessible terms for people so that um, that can be made plain. And um, that's probably my next project, to provide a, a, and everyday accessible guide to how the legal system works but um, with an economics perspective in mind so that we can understand both how it perpetuates injustice at times um, but how it can be sometimes used effectively for progressive social change and making sure we get that balance right. I think lawyers are often painted as heroes of some stories when they may not deserve to be um, and that in fact uh, so much of uh, legal history that's positive for the world has come from um, people struggling for a long time to Get that kind of change um, heard and articulated in court, and I sort of want to do some um, work that that pays homage to that as well.
0: Well, that sounds like a, a fascinating project, and I really look forward to reading it um, in the future. I really want to thank you for being on the show today and for giving us so much of your time, Lizzie. Thank you. Um, This has been an incredibly enlightening interview, and I hope that it goes away and makes up your future history. I'm so
1: grateful for the opportunity. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions. It was a real treat. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye.